Hi, this is Queer Margins Series 1, Old Queens, and I'm Reese T. Matthews. Each week I'll be sitting down with those in the LGBTQ community who are rarely heard from. And this series, I'm talking to older queer people to hear their experiences. And this is episode 4, Andy. What it takes is one person. Um, the fact that we're having sex in a room that doesn't have a locked door, in a house with other people in it, right. they're all breaking the law as much as we are. Why? Because uh, the 1967 Act was about consensual sex between adults, mm-hmm. between two, two men, behind locked doors in a locked room in an empty house. It's about complete I... privacy, completely. So not only... Uh, whoever whoever was in the house breaking the law because we were having sex Mm -hmm. so all it would take is for my parents to phone up the police and say that I'm 19 sleeping with a man who's over 21 I'm a minor so anybody who decides they don't like you could completely fuck you up Mm -hmm. and that's what happens I found Andy through a Facebook group dedicated to a gay bar called The Bell which used to be in King's Cross but has since shut down we met in his workspace, where he runs his company called Stitching Business. Here he receives orders for dressmaking, costumes and a lot more, even including some fetish wear requests, which we talk about later. Andy was outed when his mother found his diary, but he'd been getting to grips with his sexuality for a few years before that anyway. As a teenager, he'd been visiting London regularly for gay nights out, to try cruising in Hampstead Heath, to spend time with his lover and he even risked answering a personals ad in Time Out magazine when he was underage, which actually led to a date with a man who comes up later in our conversation. You can see the response to that ad on the Instagram account, which is at Queer Margins. And he has always been political and while he's in his 60s, he's still as fired up as ever. So here he is. The penny dropped, I think, when I was about... 13, going on 14, maybe, mm-hmm. that um, I was different and that I found men fascinating sexually. Mm. Um, but I, I'm a Greek Cypriot. Right. So I came from a household that, A, lived separate, lived quite away from the other uh, Greek Cypriot community. Okay. So my parents had sort of taken themselves out of it and put themselves in suburbia. Okay. Which was fine, because they wanted their kids brought up and educated in England and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But it um, meant that we were quite isolated as a group okay. and as a family. So our, my experience of the outside world and the world of English people was school and TV. That's it. And my parents arrived in the 50s, so even though uh, this was like mid-70s, my parents still carried 50s values because... They'd never moved on. Right. And their 50s Cyprus was, who knows, 30s Britain, <laughs> maybe? Yeah. Um, and that's, so that's what we were brought up with. And so as kids, you weren't, you were expected home, you, didn't, you went straight home from school, mm-hmm. you didn't play in the street, you didn't mix with wow. other people because England was full of child murderers. You know, you had the Moors murders and all yeah. of that going on in the 60s. Mm-hmm. So, I think I stumbled across a couple of films which are really bleak, uh, Hollywood films from the 60s, which are about, you know, somebody's been murdered and killed with a mm. glass dildo or something equally strange. Yeah. It's a very bizarre detective film, which okay. has this underlying theme and you realise, actually, this guy's been killed by a gay lover, and blah, blah, blah. And um, I'm thinking, OK, this is strange. Um, so I sat on it, because it's like, well, you're not going to do anything until you can leave home Mm. and I don't really know what it is anyway and then I think when I turned 16 um, I definitely knew I was gay and I definitely knew there were gay people out there Mm. Um, but I had no clue how to find them I think the summer of uh, well how do you like so you knew that there was, like, a community of gay people, or you knew that, like... Like, did you know what, like, the lifestyle was a little bit as well? Like no, you know? not quite. But then in that period, possibly a year later, 17 or so, the News of the World did a huge expose of oh, right. of uh, gay men trolling through Hampstead in white polo necks. 
right. the CD like yeah, style. Yeah, yeah. My parents always bought the News of the World because it was <laughs> you know, a slice of how bad it is out there. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> the wars, the war zone. You yeah. know. And, um, and that was quite funny. So I remember spending uh, a couple of summer evenings getting the tube to Hampstead and walking around Hampstead looking wow, really? for gay people and not finding them, of course, because... I didn't know where to yeah. look, and there weren't any, very many white polo shirts <laughs> visible. Did you, you didn't turn up with a white polo shirt, no. did you? No, I didn't, no. I think it was pale blue. <laughs> it's close to you, yeah. Yeah, you know, without... From a distance. Is he gay? Could white be, could yeah. be. Um, and then, but it was also like A-levels and getting through school, and, you know, ideally, go to uni, and then I, that'll be an escape, yeah. and you can establish myself, maybe. Mm-hmm. And, um... So, it was a, a period of just waiting, really, and not, and not really thinking that I'd meet anybody gay. I uh, risked answering an ad, a personal's ad in Time Out, at, and I was now 17 going on 18, okay. and then spent uh, a month uh, waiting for the postman Do you every what it, day. Do you remember what it said? Um... No, but somewhere I do have the letter. It was really sweet, and we did, and we met. Oh, uh, so so you sent it off. And I sent a month it off later. Well, within the month, I got finally got a reply. So it was like snatch the post before the, oh, the wow, postman yeah. came because my mother would open it guaranteed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's my, post. My, my, yeah, you do don't that have well. anything private. No. So that would probably have been the summer, my summer when I was eighteen, I think. So just after A levels. Mm-hmm. Um, and we met, and he was really cool, and was like, you're still at school, aren't you? You're not... Actually, I might have been 17. And how old is he? Uh, early 20s. Okay. Um, so, we had a pleasant a couple of hours drinking tea and sitting in Hampstead, actually. Oh, wow. And it was really cool, and, um, and we left it, because it was a case of, you know, you're just too young, mm-hmm. which yeah. is cool. Well, of course, you don't think you're too young at all, because you, yeah, oh, yeah, you wanted it since the age of 14. Yeah. Well, you knew what you wanted by 14, mm-hmm. but you've wanted it for a long time. Um, um, and then... Uh, so was that the first time you'd met? Somebody who was gay. Yeah. yeah. And who was perfectly normal-looking. Yeah. And it was quite... And, and he, he was a lab, and he was very nice, and he was a volunteer on Gay Switchboard as well. Oh, cool. And, a, and one of a twin... It was, so it was all this Im- information suddenly yeah, about and he was like so bigger and, and he's out and yeah. all of this. So I was quite fortunate mm-hmm. that I'd actually written to somebody who was yeah. at that position. Um, and I think that was also the summer that Gay News was being prosecuted by Mary Whitehouse mm-hmm. for the poem. Yeah. Um, which meant the, pre- the, new- the news on TV mm-hmm. had said there was a newspaper called Gay News. Right. So, that- so then I spent... 40 minutes in the smallest news agents you can imagine on Charing Cross Road trying to pluck up the courage to buy a copy of Gay News mm-hmm. and then work out how to get it home, really. And I did it. I think it was November. And, um, and in the paper was an article about uh, something called Befriending Group, right. which had been set up by some of the volunteers at Gay Switchboard to act as a stepping stone onto the scene so you would meet oh, Sunday afternoons cool. at somebody's flat and then you might go for a drink that evening and then you would actually do a venue during the week. And you'd Amazing. have you'd have your your group. Yeah. People that <laughs> sorry about the goosebumps. Um people who'd become your friends, effectively. Mm-hmm. And who would be there and so you didn't freak out completely going into someone by yourself. Yeah. It's intimidating, yeah. it's intimidating yeah. now. Well. Well, I think it still is intimidating yeah. now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, also, how does a fine venue mm. <laughs> in yeah. those days? Yeah. Um, and it was great. And, it's, mm-hmm. and so I, uh, phone, you had to phone Gay Switchboard. So this article was brilliant. So I phoned Gay Switchboard. And, um, and almost the first thing the volunteer said when I said, oh, I'm 18 and I'm, ga- and I'm gay and I'm looking for... And he went, you want befriending group? So clearly they'd had an and article so people, had yeah. generated a load of calls. Wow. Um, and so I then phoned the number that they gave me, and it was like, our uh, next meeting is the first Sunday of January. So and where it was are you my making new these year. phone calls from? 
I had a phone box. I yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. of course. Yeah. Going for a walk. <laughs> Can we change? <laughs> <laughs> yes, from a phone box. Yeah. And um, so it's the first Sunday of, of January. And so that was it. And I put so it was like date was set. So there was no. I'm really funny like that. Date, if I've made the appointment mm-hmm. and said I'd go, then I'm going to go. Right. Just so there's no question about whether not turning you're worried up. Or yeah, yeah. Like that. Although I was, you worry but I was, I wasn't, I was, I would have to, I had to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got in my little car and drove across London and, and it was like, oh, any of these people could have been on the underground if I'd come by tube. It was really funny. It's oh. that, all those little things. Like, yeah. Nobody here looks gay, but then what does look gay? Yeah. Cause, but of course you have no images. Mm-hmm. You know, Larry Grayson or John Inman. Mm-hmm. Maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and those sorts of that all of that happening really quickly in your head because mm-hmm. suddenly we're sitting around and we're talking about coming out right. and stuff and these are all people who are, are of different ages all in a very similar boat. Mm-hmm. Um, so you turned up. So where did you say the? Um, did you say the flat was in Charing Cross? No, um, the uh, meeting was in a vestry in Manor Manor House and I drove all the way from Conondale which Manor House was completely alien to me in okay. those days because yeah. <laughs> it was the other side of town mm-hmm. um, and it was great there were about I think there were four organisers and six or seven uh, befriendees who turned up and then that was it every Sunday, mm-hmm. we'd go, and then during the week we'd go, we'd go. So that evening, um, we ended up at the Phones Disco, which ironically was run by one of the, was run by the twins from the summer before, because they were volunteers on Go Switchboard, and this was a fun, it was their weekly disco, and the upstairs bar room of the Green Man in Great Portland Street. Wow. So my so Sunday, so I've gone from Sunday morning breakfast, don't really have a clue, yeah. to uh, having a drink and a dance with a gay man in a bar in the West End, having and spent before, an afternoon. Like, you've met one. Yeah, not just one, met one. I've yeah. met, you know, a dozen. Mm-hmm. Um, that's cool. So it was run by one, the twin of the person that you've met up with, like, from time out. Yeah, just really funny. Yeah, how the universe says you're still part of this. We mm-hmm. haven't forgotten you. You just have to wait a little bit longer. How funny that um, people always say that the scene or like the gay scene is very small, small and intimate. a gay of gay people. There was a uh, cart- fam- quite a famous cartoon in the eighties, seventies, eighties from Christopher Street magazine, and it was one clone mm-hmm. and seven mirrors and that that was the summation of the gay scene <laughs> really they're only one of us and the rest is all reflections okay, yeah <laughs> so um and then so so that was um uh, early january so every week for a couple of months uh i would go in fact for more than a couple of months and uh, we'd do the social stuff and then we'd take new people in all the time so you end up uh, so you, be, sort of you became, end up befriending people yeah. too um, I met my first lover, who was an American in London. That was quite wild. Why was it wild? Because he had a bedsit in Old Court Road. Right. When I go through Old Court, there's a, there's a wave. There should be a pink plaque, really. Oh, wow. And, um, and he'd been in town for a couple of months, and he was here for a few more months, and um, was an artist. It was really sweet. Uh, we would um, end up going back to the bedsit make love to the light of the electric bath heater and then scurry around when the, when the 50 pence ran out in the meter to put it back in the slot <laughs> so that we have more electricity. And, um, and then I would jump into my, in my car at three in the morning and drive from Earl's Court to Collindale because I had to be home. So why did your parents think you were? They just thought I was out with friends. Right. And because I was uh, over 18, there's arguments about my friends and stuff. And they knew my friends from school, mm-hmm. they'd met them in the previous year or so. Right. So, um, so that was sort of, that went really quite well. And then, um, 
Mark had to go back to America, so he went early March. Just so that was quite a shock to the system. And I got really depressed. So I started writing a journal. So I have a very interesting passage written, which sum- summed up the previous three months of coming out and the few places that we went. And, yeah. and my transformation from being um, suburban, straight, middle class to gay. Yeah. <laughs> or gay activist. Yeah. Really. So quite a mm-hmm. shunt. Totally. And stuff, and the way I, and the way I spoke changed too. In what way? Just some of the expressions I was using, right. and the tones I was using, and sometimes I'd hear the different gay men that I'd met. Come, I'd hear their voices coming through mine, which is quite surreal. Mm-hmm. But you know how you adopt people's yeah, totally. speech patterns mm-hmm. and stuff. And especially in that, all of a sudden, that intensity. You're going to realize that, aren't you? Yeah. So much. There's so much going on mm-hmm. in my head. It wasn't just coming out. It was also being an adult, uh, try, looking at how I was going to be independent and discovering all sorts of things that most people would take for granted at 18 mm. because, of course, I'd been, on many levels, not part of society in that mm. way. So it was um, great, yeah. really. And there was disco. <laughs> <laughs> to top it off. <laughs> to top it off. There was somewhere to go and throw someone around the dance floor and just let it all go. Um, but yes, yeah, so it was pretty difficult. So Mark left early January. So by so you've been seeing each other for three. So uh, January, February, oh, okay. he left beginning of March. Yeah. Um, and I started writing this journal, and then I come home from work on uh, St Patrick's Day, seventeenth mm-hmm. of March. I always remember because it's St Patrick's Day, and um, my mother beckons. And we get, I get summoned into the, the master bedroom because it's the only room apart from the bathroom and toilet that locks. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, oh shit, what's this? And she'd found my journal. Oh fuck! She, she'd actually climbed up because I was in, the, I had the attic at that point. She actually climbed up into the attic to uh, look for stuff because she said she'd had a call from friends worried about the people I was hanging with because she thought I was doing drugs. Yeah. <laughs> Which is really funny. Really fun. I suppose the 70s you could be doing drugs. but, um, And it was like, what's all this about guys? Oh, I mean, there's no there written like, Ta-da! <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> Shit. Yes. Um, so, uh, and, I'm, and I just stood my ground, really, and just, it's who I am, it's how mm-hmm. it is, there's nothing wrong. I'm perfectly happy. Yeah. And, uh, and was she angry or was she... She was really upset and confused and didn't understand why and there had to be a why, mm-hmm. really. So she wondered if they'd cut too much off when I was circumcised. Oh, fuck. That, that sort of clutching at anything. Yeah. Um, and maybe it was hormones or maybe I just need to see a psychiatrist or something. Mm-hmm. But then the clock's ticking, of course, and so she's like, right... We have to have dinner because a big family. There's six. <laughs> six yeah. Actually, at that point, there were three of us still at home, but dinner had to be served. Mm-hmm. And so she was like, "Don't tell your father because it will kill him." Because he had a weak heart. I thought I'll tell him. <laughs> I'm happy to tell him. I don't mind. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> How would you like me to tell him? And that, but I didn't, of course. Okay. But um, uh, but then a day later. I get home from work, and there, there's my father and my mother and my second eldest brother, who's the black sheep of the family. Boy. And it's like, uh, what's going on here? So mum's told my father oh. because she couldn't, didn't know what to do. She didn't know how to handle it, didn't have a clue. So she'd been thinking about it for 24 yeah. hours. It'd been building, building, building. So they called the, uh, my older brother in to take me out and find me a woman. And why, what, when you see the black sheep of the family, what do you mean by well, that? Shady deals and stuff, oh, okay. and hangs out with people and whatever, and, you know, right. that sort so of you... rock and roll lifestyle. Okay. So, uh, so, that was the plan. Uh, I mean, did you, what was your reaction <laughs> to that? It was like, well, my reaction was, really? Yeah. But, actually, it was safer to leave the house with my brother mm. than argue with 
no, you're, this is ridiculous. Yeah. So we left, and he dropped me off at Befriending Group because oh. it was a Friday night, and we agreed that uh, the official line was nothing happened. Wow. <laughs> Just completely. And that's what he said, and that's what I said. So when you left the house, was he like, look, this is bullshit, I'm not going to, yeah. like, yeah. I'm not going to take you out to find a girl, like, I know that you're gay or whatever, yeah. and then, like, and then you... Yeah, we had a really, it's quite interesting, because he's, oh, he's dead now, but um, the only time we would ever have uh, conversations that were real mm. were in his car. Okay. Really. So we had a good chat about mm-hmm. my being gay and stuff. And, wow. and how did he take it? He... It was fine. Yeah. You know. So... Yeah, and um, so yeah, the next day I came home from work and my mother says, well, how was it? And I said, fine, nothing happened. And then was it mentioned again? Uh, no, not particularly. And then uh, a few months later, a couple of months later, in, so in theory I'm going to America. Oh. In theory, because I've already been planning to travel to East Coast uh, with a friend from school, mm-hmm. and but Mark was in West Coast, right. so I changed the ticket oh. and was flying to uh, Palm Springs for six or eight, six weeks, Laker Airlines in the summer, mm. so, and that was fine because you know the ticket we'd already been talking about going with mm-hmm. my friend and stuff, so that was cool. That was quite a um, for, like you hadn't known him for that long. But I suppose it'd been quite like an intense relationship. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also, I'm at that age. I was deciding what to do about education and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so there was an element of, well, you could come to the states and you could see if it's if it would work there. Okay. And stuff. Cool. And he was a few years older, not much, four, four years right. older. And um. So yeah, and then I went through this whole thing of, no, it's not going to work. So mm-hmm. don't bother going. And then yes, I should go. And then no, I shouldn't go. And, and so on, and, and and then I met my second lover. Right. Here, before I got to the yeah. States, so just to make things more complicated. Oh, okay. But that was um, superb. That was the most intense uh, educational relationship in the universe, okay. for me, I think, for just everything. Um, uh, we were... <laughs> we were uh, forced to be reckoned with as a gay couple and we were an out gay couple okay. uh, bear in mind I'm still under 21 and he was uh, four years older than me mm-hmm. spooky right um, yeah so uh, so here I am at 19 and he's 23 mm-hmm. and he works with uh, a charity that uses young people to help old people right so there's so this whole thing of <laughs> this, yeah. but the Intensity and the passion of it all was just phenomenal, mm-hmm. and and our politics were in tune. So, I mean, we're talking the seventies. So, being gay was a the personal was political. Mm-hmm. So the importance of coming out was hugely. Um, it was hugely important to come out, really. And that what I did at home in in private was significant, because I can't survive. It's it's legislated against. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah. even after nineteen sixty-seven, still, we could get done. So, um, so I have a really superb relationship with Chris, which lasted several years. Mm-hmm. I did go to Palm Springs because the bottom line was I'm still deciding what I do with my future because yeah. I am only nineteen. Mm-hmm. Oh, that went. Yeah, I can't that was just horrible. In what way? Uh, just horrible. He couldn't handle it at all. Whereas the relationship I have with Chris is about being open and honest completely, and that's the only way to survive. Mm-hmm. And that was the structure. That's always been the structure for my relationships, that, you know, you have a contract, and the top of the contract is honesty and respect, and mm-hmm. that's it, and everything else that is irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Because if those two factors are there, then no- nothing can undermine the relationship at all. Yeah. Um, theory. Anyway, that's a different story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, so I go to the States and Mark freaks out and then I get dumped at the airport within about three days two days of being in America and I'm furious and really upset and just before I left London 
Gay News had written an article about the Lesbian and Gay Centre in LA. And here I am at LAX. Uh-huh. So I jump in a cab and I go to wherever the centre was, just off Sunset Strip, Sunset Boulevard. Uh-huh. And, um, and uh, think, well, I've got enough money. If I can find somewhere to live, maybe mm-hmm. even get a, a job for six weeks, I could actually be here and then just go home and use my ticket. Mm-hmm. But it didn't quite work out like that, really. So I ended up flying back within a week. Right. It, it, was it, it just didn't like, happen like that? or It was uh, just a mess. I was just a mess. And I didn't... It was... Uh, I needed someone to talk to, and it wasn't happening mm-hmm. in the in the gay centre. There's nothing there was nothing wrong with the gay centre, it just wasn't there was no one to connect with. Mm-hmm. Um so I walked round the corner and checked into a hotel and and then changed my ticket and flew out a few days later. Wow. But, you know, it was Yeah. I so did have guy, a sort of So the guy who's living in California, he So you were meant to stay with him and then he knew about your relationship back home. And he was like, no, I'm not having any of it. And just dropped you back at the airport with nothing. Yeah. That's, that's quite uh, well, no, I think he gave me a few hundred dollars. Right. But, but, yeah, to do but that. that's because he just couldn't cope at all. Okay. It's like, this isn't, the choice isn't about you yeah. or Chris in London. The mm-hmm. choice is about me and my future and where I where think it yeah. will work for me. Mm-hmm. And the guy in London, did he not? Because, like, obviously it's not like... You can't, like, text and call. No. So you, you just wouldn't hear from you for, like, six weeks if you were over there. Yeah. And, like, the entire time, wouldn't he have been back over here thinking, like... No, we would have um, been able to call. Oh, yeah. Because... Oh, yeah, Because we... Because... Because I had his phone number, his phone number yeah. but it wasn't mobile, so it would be a case of calling the house mm. and hoping that he was in. And, yeah. And stuff, or arranging for that sort of thing. So that was okay. But in that week that I was... I first flew out... He'd gone to visit friends in Newcastle. Oh, okay. So, so there was no one to talk to, okay. except phoning my mum to say, it's all gone pear-shaped, and I'm coming home in two days' time. And uh, her response was, I'll just tell people that you had all your money stolen. Okay. <laughs> Dealt with. Right. In that, I'm not, in that I'm not dealing with it in yeah. terms of what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Really. So not like, you know, how are you, what's been happening, whatever, just like, well, it's all... Yeah. Worried, worried so I got back to London before Chris got back to uh, his house and the flat share, the house share that he lived in in Wilsdon. And um, so I, I turned up at the... I phoned the house and spoke to the couple of people there and just was like, I want to come and wait for him to come home. Mm. And um, so I did. He almost died, bless him. I'd never seen anyone turn as white as a sheet, really, because he walked in. He didn't. He, would, he spent his whole journey on the bus mm-hmm. from Newcastle thinking, uh, Andy will be there. Yeah. And then, no, Andy won't be there because Andy's in the States. Andy will be there. All this, all yeah, the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, so he walked in, and there was me in the, fo- in the, land, in the, in the hall, who drops his bag. What the fuck? <laughs> oh my God. So, um, yeah. So I phoned my mum and told her I wasn't coming home. Right. And he's not had his, he's not had his stuff stolen now. <laughs> no, and, and, uh, I, she, I came home, so this is me phoning to say I'm not going to rush yeah. home at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. I'm out. I'm not coming in. Mm-hmm. I'm not coming back. And, um, yeah. So by September, I moved in with Chris. Okay, I was going to ask when... But we had separate rooms. Oh. Well, we had a room that was mine, officially. And, uh, and Is we that had, because of the age? Yeah. Right. And that paranoia that wow. is with it. You wouldn't think that people would... Like, that wouldn't be something... I mean, obviously, it's not something that would go through my mind because, like, I haven't, like, lived in that time. But, like, you'd think that it would just be like, well, we're at home. No, because um, all it takes is one person. Um, the fact that we're having sex... Mm in a room that doesn't have a locked door, and in fact, one of the rooms didn't have a door at all, it had a curtain, uh, in a house with other people in it, right. they're all breaking the law as much as we are. Why? Because uh, you had to... Um, sex got... Uh, the 1967 Act was about consensual sex between adults, mm-hmm. between two, two men, 
behind locked doors in a locked room in an empty house. It's about complete privacy, completely. So not only whoever, whoever was in the house breaking the law because we were having sex, mm -hmm. and uh, um, not breaking the law, yeah, because they're uh, yeah, uh, by aid. association, yeah, whatever, yeah, aiding and abetting, yeah. but not, you know, mm -hmm. and he didn't organise our meeting, <laughs> they'd be soliciting. But um, all of that was still pre relevant. So all it would take is for my parents to phone up the police and say that I'm 19, yeah. sleeping with a man who's over 21. Shit. I'm a minor. And do you think they would have had that in them? No, because no, of the shame. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a double-edged sword, mm -hmm. fortunately, yeah. that one. <laughs> but, um, but you have that. Really, so anybody who decides they don't like you yeah. could completely fuck you up. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens, really. And okay, that's what in theory the 6 or 7 Act was meant to mm -hmm. stop, but it didn't. It's weird that, like, deciding that 40 minutes that you spent deciding in the uh, newsagent in Sharon Cross whether to buy that magazine or not completely changed your life. Yeah. And I wonder, like, where you'd be or where you would have been for those few years had you not, like, got that magazine? There are things... There's, um, I have a great fondness for David Hockney and The Bigger Splash, which okay. was a film mm -hmm. that came out, and I think that was... I think it might have been 74. I was 16. Mm -hmm. It's about summers and, you know, post-O-level, post-A-level. And... Sneak into the cinema to see it because it had been featured in Time Out and it had a gay theme mm -hmm. and um, going. So if I hadn't seen that, then I wouldn't have started thinking about being gay, mm -hmm. really, and, and seeing and seeing it on the big screen. Was, you know, that, was it positive? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. It's a crazy. Okay. Uh, it was based on his Polaroids. And right. his paintings, the biggest yeah, splash. Yeah, I've seen the, I've, so yeah, it's all, the and so it was filmed in the house where the swimming pool was. Right, okay. And with all, with a lot of the. I still existed. Uh, I've been to the it's divine. Stuff, but, but did you not see? It gets mentioned in the the BBC's Hockney documentary that oh, okay. came out a couple of years ago, and I sat there crying watching it because everything just came flooding yeah. back, and how uh, how vital it was for me because I saw. Oops. Because um, I saw men interacting together in a not quite sexually, but as gay men, mm -hmm. and that was really significant, really. So uh, it's important. So I I, um, I worked with Gay Switchboard, and I did a lot of training stuff for Switchboard, and I did some equalities training as mm -hmm. well, and I've been in situations. <laughs> Equalities Trader and I went to, to talk gay to kids at the White Lion Free School, which is in, at the Angel, used to be at the Angel, I don't know if it still is, and it's a free school, so it's all the kids that nobody else can handle are here, Yeah. and we've gone to talk gay. <laughs> what did talking gay... Oh, just a riot, really, because as soon as we arrived, the kids were round us, and this was lunchtime, and so it was a case that we just have to start, said the teacher, because... It's starting. <laughs> and then one of the kids came out. Oh, fuck. And it was like, good. good How old were you? Um, 16. And it was really... And it was that whole thing of, see what you've done, it's, it's catchy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, like, yeah. no. What, see, what's happened here is that he felt safe enough to do this. Mm -hmm. Because here we are. Uh, she's a black lesbian and me. So we're not... We're not yeah. They're normal white kids, mm -hmm. white people that they're going to deal with. That their teachers were, and um, and it was great. So what year? When was this? I think it was sort of eighty, late eighties. That must have like that sixteen-year-old's like, like yeah. I'd... So, but you see, within a few years of that, um, so I was uh, around the uh, Femi who was runs the. Uh, quality training. And we trained together for a couple of years. Um, and it was interesting because by then we were running we were running a session for um, it might have been a housing organisation or something. And one of the pro exercises we did was to get people to split into the 
groups to cover women, gay, disabled. Mm-hmm. And um, they would have to write stereotypes, list them on, an ab- on a flip chart. It's a really good way of just getting the shit out yeah. there. And this young man sat there and refused to take part. Absolutely refused mm-hmm. on the gay section. And it was mm-hmm. like, what's your problem? It's like, my uncle's gay. And it was like, this is why, this is why you come out. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. you know, his uncle came out. So he's now um, 20 and is not going to say a bad thing about his uncle. Mm-hmm. You know, My little brother <laughs> threw a man out of a pub window, threw a pub window, hit the local press, because um, he had, this guy had been dissing somebody about being queer. And my brother was like, don't use that word, it's gay. And he did it three times and my brother lost it. Because oh. in his, my brother just was aware of me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't there. No, yeah. And he warned him three times and then he picked him up and threw him through the window. <laughs> you don't mess with my little brother at all, <laughs> no, right, trust yeah. me. You know, he's six years younger than me. But he was taking nothing, he was taking no shit yeah. about his big brother. And that's why, yeah, like you said, that's why it's so important to come out, isn't it? And to be, yeah. like, visible as well, I suppose. Yeah. So, um, coming out's very different now. The pain is still there. The anxiety, the um, fear of rejection. Mm-hmm. I was talking about it with someone down the corridor and um, how a young person comes out and their friends are really nonchalant about it. Mm-hmm. But the young person was, still has that issue. You don't know how people will react, regardless no. of how cool your friends are. Mm-hmm. And then, the, and and she said, "Oh, well, everybody said that. We all knew." Mm. But of course, people say that after the fact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No one says, "Are you gay?" If you are, it's okay, or brings it up in a conversation to make it easier. Mm. But things have changed. I remember being somewhere on a job, and um, a woman assuming that I was gay. This is within the last decade, mm-hmm. which I thought was really cheeky. Not, not that I have a problem with people assuming I'm gay, but the fact that she said it. Right. And that she's coming from a, an environment where ha- knowing people are gay isn't an issue. Mm-hmm. And that's how things have changed. Yeah. Whereas before, if someone said, you're gay, you're just wondering where the brick is. <laughs> you know, what's going to come at you next? Right, yeah. So she's, she was doing it for a place of... Um... Yeah, but she was trying to be familiarity yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and giving an element of a friendly hand mm-hmm. or friendly face in a because we're in a strange environment. I can't remember what it was. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember thinking, you just that's a bit cheeky. And then thinking, this is such the opposite to way back in my first one of my early jobs. Um, one of the uh, girls at the work were like, So you're married? Engaged? No. <laughs> Got a girlfriend? No. And I thought, let's just stop there because she's not going to go any further. Mm-hmm. And I just turned around and went, I've got a boyfriend. And what was the reaction? <laughs> was she expecting that? No, no, not at all. They don't. People didn't, mm-hmm. really. Because people didn't know other gay people except what they see on the TV or what they read in the sun mm-hmm. or the news of the world. So um, it's always been important. And I always expect the question, and you always get it. Yeah. Every time you turn up to a new job, someone's going to ask the questions, but they don't necessarily take it. Then, mm-hmm. wouldn't necessarily take it any further. Uh, and what kind of environment was that that you were working in then? That was a shop. Right. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting, because I think people, like, that still happens now, doesn't it? But I think now, quite often when it happens, I mean, people obviously presume people are straight anyway, but now when it happens, if, some, if, if people are asking me if I've got or like my friends or like if I, they've got girlfriends or whatever then I always presume that they're just saying it because they want you to say oh, no I'm gay and like they already knew it know it but then that's a little bit rude too to be like oh I'll go this way because I don't want to offend somebody it's weird it's, there isn't a a simple way no, to do it um, and also because come from a generation that would use pronouns cleverly hmm. so you, you wouldn't necessarily yeah. talk about her or him yeah and stuff like that mm-hmm. well i I didn't. I came out, really. Mm. I burnt down the wardrobe. There was no closet. There's just the rail, you know. And so um, it's not um, 
for me, coming out was really important. And so it just, everything, <coughs> everything was happening, as I said earlier, at the same time. So that whole discovering who you are at 18 and stuff. But also I was getting politicised um, on all sorts of levels, including the, the whole man, men's um, revolution that was going on too, mm. not just being gay, but actually there were lots of men and sort of men talking about being men, let alone being gay men. Mm-hmm. Um, just that sort of leftover of the 60s and yeah. the late 70s, so it's understandable really. And mm. So the, as I said, the, the line of the personal is political. So I would go to men's groups and sit around and talk mm-hmm. to men who were queer mm-hmm. and some were straight um, and sit around and talk about what it is to be a man. So I did a lot of that sort of stuff. So for me, I challenged everything, including my masculinity. When was the next time you spoke to your parents about being gay? And like, was there ever a point where you would like just talk about like boyfriends? Well, um, of course, I moved out and moved in with yeah. Chris. Um, and just before that happened, I was ill, and he, and mother, mum knew he was my boyfriend, and he turned up, and um, apparently challenged my mother. Oh, no. That's really dangerous because she's a fierce, was a very fierce, short, round Greek woman <laughs> and could skin you alive <laughs> within seconds with a look, really. But he challenged her, and in terms of because um, he was my lover, that he would he was also capable of looking after me, mm-hmm. and that, that's why he had turned up at the house to come and see me, right? And to check that I'm okay. And she wasn't having any, and problems. she was tried to, and he just stood his ground I mean they had met so it wasn't like it was a stranger Stranger, but enough he really broke the ice and she appreciated the relationship when you said that your mother allowed you cooking was one of the only things that she allowed you to do that was like traditionally feminine how did you end up (laughs) in this room (laughs) with all of this yeah which is quite funny um what my mother also gave me was a love of fabric. Okay. Because she would sew, mm-hmm. and she had, at various points, been a seamstress, but she'd make all her own clothes. So we'd go fabric shopping together. And as me, I don't know, 11, 12. Mm-hmm. And, and were you the only child that went with? Yeah, 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 yeah. And, um, and I would choose. I would be, they'd be, like, looking, and I'd be going, no, this with this one, this with this <laughs> one. Put these together and stuff. And so um, I... Uh, would buy fabric. I'd spot fabric. I'd go to the market and see something and I'd buy a piece of fabric. Right. But I had no sewing machine. I did make myself something. I was 20, summer of 78, at the Oval House Cafe. Mm-hmm. Oval House as in Oval. Yeah, yeah. And the cafe on Sunday afternoons was queer. Oh, cool. The staff were gay and it was gay. Just on a Sunday afternoon? You just had... Uh, it was full of gay hippies. And queer men and women. And so I took this uh, pieces that I was making and hand, hand sewing, sitting in the gar- in the, outside in the sunshine, while some people are doing Tai Chi over there, <laughs> somebody else is doing yoga over here, and it was just gay. And wow. Like, and just magic. Many years later, many, mm. many years later, um, I have a date on Gaydar, and I turn up at this guy's house in Camden, and I walk in and we're having a beer and talking. And I look at him and I go, you worked at the, you worked at the Oval House Cafe. It's that moment where all the years just melt and you just see the person. And I just saw him as he was at 20-something. And here we are. 20 years, 20 years later. And, he'd, and just, it was so surreal. It was really, really, really weird. And you but, just recognise them from, you used to go there often? Yeah, it was, every Sunday we'd be there because it was Gay Sunday. You'd go, get in the car and head south, you know. And it was, it was how the scene was. It was a bit here, a bit there. There was, like, Friday night would be in this pub, had a room with a disco. Saturday night might be this pub with a room and a disco. Sunday night might be this club. Um, Do you don't think it's sad that um, that, doesn't, that doesn't happen anymore, really? That Exceedingly, it's extremely sad. Mm. Really, um, we've lost lost it completely. It was magic, absolutely mm. magical, because you just see these 
And I still see these people, you know, decades later. Cool. And you just wave and think, you're just old, but you're the same hippie. It's lovely, you know. Yeah. And it's just special. So I sat and hand-sewed the jacket and his trousers mm -hmm. and used them for somebody's machine. But then I didn't have a sewing machine for the whole of the 80s at all. Right. Um, and then early 90s, I thought, I've got all these fabrics. I really should start doing something. And then my sister turned up with a brand new machine with a manual, mm -hmm. brother, right. of course, as a thank you, because I'd helped her through some difficult times, and um, started making stuff. Wow. And made stuff. And then uh, a couple of years later, I'm working in the Edwards, which is a gay pub at okay. the Angel, right. um, and then became manager for a while. Hmm. Uh, and I was wearing stuff that I was making, and one of the regulars ran a model making company that made models for advertising and stuff, like they would make giants, Twix bars, and whatever, and was like, Andy, you sew, would you be able to do some freelance stuff? So I've been running stitching this stitching business for 15 years now. And I read that you had made, as I've also made stuff like Katy Perry, or made something? I know. <laughs> That's mad that you taught yourself um, to sew and you've gone on to... And then I've done stuff. I also read that you have had um, requests for fetish wear. <laughs> what, what, what manifested, how did that go down? What sort of... How did that go down? Well, of course it, I'll do it. Okay. But, like, so, so your, your company, people can contact you and, and request. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I make, I sew. Uh, fabric is what the reason why I sew. Mm -hmm. So um, so uh, I think, as I say all over the place, if all it takes is a, a piece of fabric and a little imagination and it's an infinite number of possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, so I've done stuff which has been uh, intimate fetish stuff, like strangeness, like can you do a den button denim hobble skirt like this one and then you get a clip from some Japanese strange teenage girl thing she's hobbling across and you're dealing with a man over here who wants the same denim look with all these buttons down it so the whole thing is like almost restricted but you can just shuffle and then someone from a rectory somewhere in Hertfordshire rectory vicarage with a wool dress from Marks and Spencer's and could could he have it buttoned all the way down the back, please? Because it already has buttons. And could the hem be hobbled too and stuff? And it was all safety pinned and whatever. And all done over the internet, over emails and stuff, and, which has been quite funny. You're 60, is that right? Do you feel like part of the LGBT community? Like, do you... Like, what's your engagement with, like, gay people now? Like, are you... Well, I have my gay friends, mm -hmm. and... Um, Pride this yeah. year. So did you uh, go to Pride? I got as far as mm, Covent Garden. Okay. <laughs> Open. I have friends who live there. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were meeting and we met. And then we sat and we talked and we drank and we talked and we drank. Right. And then by the time we decided to step out and see what was happening in Soho, it was eight o'clock. And I'm like, mm, no, I'm not going to do it because uh, I sprained my... Uh, knee ligaments, so I have a major problem with feeling confident about my my mobility. And the last thing I want to do is have my foot trapped oh, in a beer yeah. can um, and then twist my knee. Yeah, not ideal. And I mean, I've had the gayest of days with my gay family, my mm -hmm. gay friends, and I'm really happy. And yeah. I don't need to do it. No, really. And then, uh, and then I heard about what happened, and I was horrified. Really, the uh, anti-trans women at the front. Mm -hmm who were left there and who weren't chased off, um, appalling. And then I hear from other Jewish friends that the female rabbi was being harassed for being Jewish because, mm -hmm. of course, every Jew is responsible for Palestine. And it's like, no. And um, so, yeah, I would have been there very angry with a big stick. Yeah. Why do you think that is? It's exceedingly commercial. I mean, it's all branded. When I go to my Santander cash point machine and there's a rainbow flag... Mm. I'm sitting on the bus looking at the back advert on the Metro magazine and it's Paddy Power saying they'll pay 10000 to for every goal score to a, les to a lesbian and gay mm -hmm. uh, organisation. And I'm like, nice. 
Why just today, though? Mm. Yeah. It's not enough. Yeah. Uh, But it's not enough that we disappear, really. I have a whole... I have all sorts of issues, really, on that score, really. Gay marriage. What do you mean by disappear? Well, because we become... Just part of... We just become part of it, really. And and it's the fact that the pink pound is so strong, Mm -hmm. really, that we do have a voice. There is a huge... uh, difference in terms of how we are now to how we were then but we aren't we aren't butterflies anymore mm. really okay. just a handful of interesting moths so do you feel like we've sort of blended into normal life yeah. a lot of a lot of coming out is about just changing the missus to mister really and uh, and gay marriage is really co- is really good because it the state recognizes uh, a homosexual relationship, mm-hmm. really. And if that doesn't say you can't shout us down anymore, yeah, then we're fucked completely. But I still think it's wrong. <laughs> why, do, why is that? Because um, civil partnership should have done it, and and the fact that everybody has to Greek Cypriot. So if any of my family are getting married, you go to the registry office. Then you go to church. Right. You're not legally married in this country unless you go to the registry office. So all they had to do was say, you just go and register your union. End of story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't need a marriage bit. The marriage bit is a Christian thing. It's a church thing, and there's no reason for that mm-hmm. um, particular niggle. And they just fucked it up, because civil partnership should have worked, really. Mm-hmm. and uh, it just made a mess of it so it's dodgy because you disappear mm-hmm. really people don't need to come out then they get upset really I had this period in the 80s when we were very angry about AIDS and um, and I just wanted the police to raid heaven on New Year's Eve <laughs> that was my dream okay. that they would just raid heaven on New Year's Eve and all these BT queens who would only gay after six in the weekends you know, like cheap rate phone calls, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> BT, BT Queens, yeah. um, would get a shock, really, because they're, suddenly their big party of the year is taken away from them because they've been raided mm-hmm. and may possibly politicise them. Right, but it never happened. But it was that sort of thing because people just weren't... And the 80s forced a lot of people back into the closet, mm-hmm. really, because of the atmosphere, uh, the atmosphere in the 80s. Do you, and were you never tempted to... Did you feel like you were being pushed back into the closet at all? No. no. I just got loud, though. I got more promiscuous, mm-hmm. <laughs> ironically. Okay, that's so, but, so, yeah. Um, I think mid-80s, there was a period where I had more partners in the year than I'd had in my whole uh, sort of so ten years of being out. So you were worried about HIV at all? Or was were you just... Just aware that if you had to be sensible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Really. Well, I I did come from the gay political, gay switchboard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So all of that stuff, really. So you're intelligent enough. Mm-hmm. Back in the early days of coming out, you would you were socially responsible. So if you were promiscuous, then you also had to be responsible for that. Because, of course, the person's political and blah, blah, blah. And so... Uh, you go to the clap clinic every three months because that's mm-hmm. the incubation period of syphilis. Yeah. That was the logic behind it. So mm-hmm. if you were feeling funny, then you'd go anyway. Mm-hmm. But if you were fine, then you would go every three months. Right. So every three months you'd go to the, um, the clinic and the f- favourite one was uh, in Charlotte Street. Um, and you'd see the people you knew in the waiting room. Be like a sexual thing. Be like, hi. (laughs) Seen you for three months, (laughs) or whatever. And um, and then you would see them. And then there were people that you would see on Gay Pride because Pride was smaller too. And you'd Mm -hmm. end up in a park or at the university student union building, Mm -hmm. and stuff. And then um, Pride got bigger, but also got smaller. So the people you knew, you weren't seeing anymore. Why was that? So you wonder. Well. You wondered, mm-hmm. well, have we lost? Have we lost more this year? Um, are these people? Have these people just stopped coming out? Mm-hmm. Stopped being out? There was an influx. There was a exodus in seventy nine, eighty to Holland, 
when Margaret Thatcher came into power, because it was... I forget, I have this really funny thing, because I forget I came out in 1977, mm-hmm. and I always think I came out in the 80s, and I forget those three years. And those three years were as glorious as Pride could have been this year. That's right. how incredible the late 70s was. Mm-hmm. Everything was happening. And uh, we had the village people. You had people who were out. You had gay politicians about to come out. Mm-hmm. You... Uh, had all this stuff happening, such progression, really, fa- really, really fast. Yeah. So more people coming out than the year before. So it and felt like there's a lot changing. It was all happening. Well. You know, mm-hmm. Pride went from two hundred people to a couple of thousand, mm-hmm. which is, you know, yeah. huge. And um, and then it didn't happen, and yeah. and it's happened now. Mm-hmm. So there's like a there's a big gap. Twenty years, two decades of stuff that didn't happen. A lot of gay men just stopped, disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, some went back into the closet. Tom Robinson, sing if you're glad to be gay. And then he goes straight. <laughs> um, uh, but you had... But there were still visible gay celebrities in the 80s. You had Jimmy Somerville. You had Andy Bell. And, um, who's lovely. We took him in when he was homeless. Yeah. It was really funny. It's really sweet. He mentioned me in a podcast recently. Yeah. But the 80s, it was just a really odd time. Well, you found me through the Bells yeah. page. And mm-hmm. the Bell was magic. Mm-hmm. And it was really funny because it had been this rough, horrible Irish mafia, stabby, stabby bar. Mm-hmm. And it had a massive facelift. And before it officially reopened, Gay Switchboard had a general meeting in there because one of the people on Switchboard, volunteers on Switchboard, knew the new landlords. So we had the space, mm-hmm. brand new, plush, you know, everything. And um, it was great. So then later, a couple of days later, I tell a friend who's running one of the nights in a, one of the bars in the area, because you had a club here, you know, as I said, mm-hmm. pubs had but nights. I said, you should go and look at the bell, because it's waiting for something, and you can put all the different nights on in the same place right and they did oh they got it so, so you're responsible for yeah but nobody believes me but it's true because <laughs> I, I told them because Don Tyler and I later because Don was one of the night workers I think and um, uh, and then a few years later well 1989 Don and I set up a club Thursday night club called Asia right at uh, the Paradise Club which was a huge barn of a place just behind Angel Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, and we were drinking there one Thursday, and the place was empty. And we just said, "We can fill it. Mm-hmm. We have DJs. Uh, we have the door. You have the bar. How about it?" And the downstairs area was a restaurant, and there was a bar and a dance floor. And then you went through up some, through a door and up some steps, and it was just warehouse. Right. So we did it. Within six weeks, we went from nothing to. Uh, main uh, house dance floor with live percussionist uh, downstairs Bangra Latin uh, African and we I would go in every Thursday afternoon and drape and decorate the venue and then <laughs> take it all down every Whoa. Thursday it was the biggest mix of uh, lesbians and gays in the universe it was delightful Indian girls in saris and TMs skinheads <laughs> and, and this skinhead in a uh, Union Jack t-shirt and the uh, Indian girls are going fucking really scary six foot six really scary so I go up and I'm like um, you're really scaring this floor do you think you could take your t-shirt off I said oh I'm really sorry <laughs> just whips it off and um, it was great mad really yeah straight couples who come in I'd tell off for snogging. Mm-hmm. He'd be like, uh-uh, you don't eat pork at a Jewish wedding. <laughs> you don't do that here. If I did that in, in your bar, it'd be carried out bleeding. Mm-hmm. It won't happen here, so please, respect. And it was um, great. Would you swap being gay and 20 years old when you were gay and 20 years old for being gay and 20 years old today? Would you swap your time? No. No? No. Why? Because it was all new. Mm-hmm. Because everything was new. 
That might me. scare some people. But if you need to walk away from the life you, ha- the childhood you had, mm-hmm. then everything new is absolute nirvana. Right. Because it's nothing behind you; it's all in front of you. Mm-hmm. Um, everything was new. Music was new. You know, I mean, we laugh at disco, but you would dance for eight hours mm-hmm. without any drugs. Studio 54 may have had them, but a good DJ and you would yeah. sp- start spinning and you would not stop until, <laughs> until they turned the lights on and then you were still dancing. And that was, you know, just how it was. Mm-hmm. And it, it was all incredible and magical and new. I think people who are 20-something coming out now are very fortunate um, and I just hope that they understand who they are mm-hmm. and they do come out. From your experience, what would you say? Believe in yourself, really. That is the bottom line. And respect. You have to respect yourself and also others around you. Mm. And if you don't have that, then you're entitled to throw a brick, <laughs> really. If the, if the fascists come for me, then I will become exceedingly violent because they have no respect. They want me dead. Mm. End of story. Um, there was a night at the bell, skinheads came from the Angel. Angel was a hotbed of nest of skinheads. Right. Um, the bell is at the bottom of the hill. Mm-hmm. And two of them barged in. There were more outside, but two barged in. And someone got up on the stage, made an announcement that the skinheads were there, which she got into such trouble because, of course, she shouldn't be doing that. But everybody turned and faced the door. And the rage... You could feel people's blood boil. And you see everybody, as they're walking towards the entrance, are picking up bottles automatically. It's just there. And we're ready. It's like, no way. And the police came, of course, and we were locked in. And they wouldn't let us out, because, of course, it was all going on outside. And it was like, just let everybody out. Right there, so with the two skinheads, they They, they got out. I know the rest of us were gearing up to go out too. And, we, and the doors get locked on us. The landlords close the place down. But it was a classic. I've never felt that at all. And you knew every single person there, you know, it was that rage of, no, you don't do this to my family. Mm-hmm. Uh-uh. And we're de- all dealing with AIDS. Mm-hmm. You know, there's... <laughs> The goth movement got so important, got so relevant because everybody was wearing black. We'd stopped. We'd gone from disco, divas, butterflies, uh, fashion trends, and it stopped. We wore black, and that's what people who went to the bell wore black, and so many uh, that flamboyant, loud, brash exuberance had been squashed for several years, mm-hmm. except for Pride. Mm-hmm. We'd come out and. Scream and shout. Yeah. And throw beer bottles. <laughs> or refuse to go where we're supposed to go. Mm-hmm. We did that in 82, post-Brixton riots, when the Brixton Ferry got arrested for having a meat cleaver in his handbag that had been in his hat. Right. He'd been told to take it out of his hat. Okay. By one officer, and then ten yards later, can we see inside your bag? Mm-hmm. So he got arrested, put in Bow Street. And we... And the Gay Mar- Parade, Gay March was going to ULU, University of London Union Building. That's mm-hmm. where the party was going to be. And um, we refused to go in. We stood in the streets and refused to go in. And we, we turned the march around and we marched to Bow Street Police Station. Oh, wow. And insisted they release people they'd arrested. And they did. And it worked. Yeah, and then we went back. And um, the pool turned pink because... Uh, one of the queens, Julian, was famous for um, his last day at London Transport in the 70s, calling a press conference because he turned up in a woman's uniform because they would give him such a hard time about what he would wear. This is the 70s. It's a Brixton fairy, a real Brixton fairy, a real Brixton local. And he dyed a wedding dress pink and then dived into the pool. <laughs> turned the pool pink. And, um, yeah, it's a nice, quiet Saturday afternoon. We left Andy's workspace together and when we got downstairs we hugged and said goodbye. I felt like I got to know Andy really well in the time that I spent with him and he messaged me that evening saying 
Thank you for my two hours or so of gay counselling. I'm so glad he felt comfortable enough to share his stories with me and he actually put me in touch with someone that I've interviewed later in the series. Like I said earlier, you can see what was in the letter the guy from Time Out magazine sent to Andy's parents' house where he suggests a date and a location for the pair to meet up. It's a really sweet letter actually and that's on the Instagram account which is at Queer Margins. And there you'll also be able to find a photo of Andy and a lot more. It was so great meeting up and chatting to Andy. And like I said, I'm just really glad that he felt comfortable talking to me. If you enjoyed this episode, then please rate, review and subscribe and follow on Instagram, which is, again, at Queer Margins. So thanks a lot for listening.